Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of my conversation with Simon, a tenured associate professor of economic geology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada. So, Simon, I would like to continue our discussion with learning a little bit more about this importance of having a technical expertise of mining and also understanding the policy and politics around the extraction. I mean, geopolitics are being put up to the front of many of these issues today, even whether or not the geologists like it. It's becoming a very big geopolitical issue and domestic issue. But not all scientists or politicians see things from each other's perspective. So could you maybe speak a little bit about the value of being able to have a foot in both the doors and understanding and trying to make meaningful change in this race for critical materials? And what would you tell your students about their work? And you spoke with this in part one a little bit about not only getting minerals out of the ground, but also applying it to some of the social issues related to extraction. I think there's a key piece here in that us as scientists, we need to kind of ideally inform policymakers about the implications of their policy. Because if somebody with no knowledge of the minerals industry or the reliance of modern society on minerals and metals makes a statement saying, well, we're going to go to all electric vehicles by 2050, they need to realize that that policy has a material and metal cost that needs to be thought about if that policy is to be successful. Otherwise, they're just making policy that doesn't mean anything. You need to think about not just the electric vehicles themselves. You need to think about grid infrastructure. You need to think about where all these metals are coming from. And you need to think about what implications that has for global supply and demand for metals, depending on the size of the country where the policy is being made, you know, that could have a significant impact. In terms of educating students about the importance of thinking about both sides of things, there's a number of different reasons why it's important to think about not just the rocks themselves, but also the other aspects of economic geology especially in the kind of world where the minerals industry is faced by increasing environmental, social, and governmental challenges. Economic geologists, if they're working in mineral exploration, they're often the first people on the ground in an area where nobody might have actually looked for a mineral deposit before. So it's important that they realize that they're not just there to look at the rocks, they're there to engage positively with local communities and ensure that things are done the right way from an environmental and social viewpoint and governmental as well. Unless you actually think about that and inform and and get students thinking about that, then that's something that isn't really covered in any other course in geoscience. I don't think there's, maybe in hydrogeology or something like this, there's a little bit on it, but I don't think that the courses that I've taken and the courses that I've even taught in kind of more pure aspects of geoscience actually cover the environmental and social challenges that we in the minerals industry face and that people, if once they graduate from the university and they go into the minerals industry, may well encounter. It's not just kind of the foot in both doors being important for, to inform policymakers and so on. I think it's vital for us in the minerals industry, be it in academia or actually in the industry itself, or even in associated governmental organizations, to remember that it's important to think about not just the rocks, which are crucial, but also everything else that surrounds the minerals industry. It's very hard to tell a geologist not to think about the rocks. I get that's a very <laughs> big obstacle. But no, I think you bring up a really good point. And one of the things that I always think about too is there's a lot of conversation about 
geoscience communication or talking about science. Well, that's kind of like I was talking in part one is that I also think that from a international affairs perspective, we need to be doing a better job also not expecting the scientists have to convey everything to us, but also learning a little bit about the science as well, which makes that language a little bit easier between both fields. And like at George Washington, which is where I got my master's degree, and I've been a part of some of the other international affairs schools in D.C., you can take a politics of the Middle East course, you can take oil economy classes, but you cannot find a course on critical minerals in that international affairs context. And that's something that I want to work on is trying to figure out and how do we talk about critical minerals from a technical perspective, but to international affairs students, because you do that in gas and oil industries and hydrocarbons, but you don't do that right now in critical minerals. And I think part of the problem is all of the experts that would know a lot about critical minerals and could teach are busy trying to get the critical minerals. So you have a massive influx where no one has the time to teach because they're busy doing all the work because there's a huge gap. The other thing to remember about the U.S. is there's actually a dearth of economic geologists. You compare the U.S. and Canada, the geology doesn't stop at the border. The critical mineral deposits don't, or any mineral deposits don't stop at the border. But the amount of economic geology undertaken in terms of education or research in Canada is way higher than it is in the U.S. And I'd even argue that's probably the case for the UK. The UK probably does just as much economic geology research at universities as an, an education and, as we do here in the US. And the UK, from memory, has maybe one to two metal mines total at the minute. I mean, there's other projects which may get off the ground, but the UK is never going to be a, an important global supplier of metals considered critical, whereas the US already is in a number of cases. So I think we need to rethink about, going back to the workforce, the stuff we discussed earlier, I think we need to rethink about what we consider to be important in terms of educating people at university and, and also emphasizing the, the importance of the minerals industry and the opportunities surrounding the minerals industry for employment without getting too far down the greenwashing side of things and stating that minerals industry is the savior of mankind and we should let them do whatever they want to do. I've probably alienated some minerals industry people there, but this is reality. So we need to have a balance. I was going to say that balance is perfect. I mean, myself, I just got out of undergrad, I guess, in 2016 and I was at Virginia Tech and I was originally in geosciences. And like, even from that perspective, the framework and the courses, like if you're looking at where's the jobs, where's the industry, a lot of that expertise was in oil and gas. There was not much discussion, even when I was at undergrad, about critical minerals and getting that as a job in a massive career field. And just now you're looking at it and like, man, I've spoke to some companies and like we are just trying to find people when they get out of college for that job. It's exactly the same here. And it's not even just critical minerals. Nevada gold mines up here in the north of the state is pretty, I'm not going to say they're desperate for people, but they certainly need employees and who know about the minerals industry and who know about mining. And the fact is that, you know, they're looking to us to actually develop that workforce for them, for the state. And we're moving in the right direction in concert with them. And obviously that will also hopefully positively affect other uh, minerals industry uh, organizations around here who need good quality employees. And yeah, that's a plug for UNLV, but I've got to get one in somewhere. <laughs> so one of the conversations that's gained a lot of traction now is reassessing old tailings from historical mining operations or waste piles to extract some various metals that were left over from the past. Do you have any examples of this and how will it be useful in trying to produce some of the new supplies around some of these materials? And could you also frame this as how much greenfielding versus brownfielding should we expect in the future in trying to meet some of these demands? I think there's a, I mean, textbook example, all you need to do is look at a waste from mining either, well, 20 or 30 years ago, or even just now. The fact is we're 
we're already moving around a whole load of minerals and metals we consider critical, but we're not actually extracting them. I've done some recent work on tellurium, which in the US and Canada, we probably move around or mine, but don't actually extract about nearly half of global tellurium production in active operations. With processing that could extract tellurium. If you take into account the the processing that can't extract tellurium, whether tellurium just ending up in heat leach pads that will, uh, won't be recovered or has future potential, then you know all of a sudden then you're realizing that we're just losing metals and minerals left, right, and center because you're not thinking about mining in a more critical metal-friendly way. There's other examples, some of the lead-zinc deposits in Australia, like a Broken Hill, where they've mined for more than a century. Those deposits contain quite a bit of indium. And you know, research we did in the late 2010s demonstrated that there's about two or three years worth of global production of indium just sat in tailings piles at a broken hill because when they mined the deposits, nobody needed indium. That's the thing. If you think about the fact is that over the last 20, 30 years, we've probably doubled the amount of elements we use in the periodic table. That means that mining, even now, using approaches that were kind of or flow sheets that were developed 20 or 30 years ago, aren't really considering the metals we consider critical, especially the byproducts. So they're just being lost. So you can just look around anywhere. There's lots and lots of potential in waste materials and also lots of potential in current mining activities that are just not being realized because we're not communicating as well as we could with the minerals industry in order to say, just look at this potential. It's not just potential for critical metal supplies, potential economic bonuses for the company. Rio Tinto's Bingham Canyon operation is moving to produce 20 tons of tellurium a year. I think from memory that the plant there is going to cost $3 million and the value of that tellurium will make that money back in two or three years. So I think there's, as far as Bingham's operation goes, that's not a huge amount of money, but it's certainly not a loss. And it's certainly good sustainability credentials for the company and good news for critical metal supply, good news for environmental benefits if all that tellurium goes into solar panels and so on. So there's lots of opportunities out there. And basically, those opportunities are all over the place. We just need to be better at quantifying them and identifying high-priority areas. A lot of people talk about the idea of just going back to many of these older sites. I mean, but I guess the reality is we're still going to have to do a lot more mining at new greenfield sites as well. I mean, is it going to be a silver bullet or how much of a silver bullet? Because, I mean, I always tell people, don't put all your eggs in one basket here. It's going to take a multifaceted approach. We need to do a bit of everything. So we need to discover new ore bodies and greenfields environments. We need to make sure that brownfield expansion of existing operations is pretty effective. And we had a copper paper out in, I think, 2018 or 2020 in economic geology that demonstrated that on average, copper resources actually grew over time coincident with production. So in other words, not only these copper uh, deposits actually producing copper, but the amount of copper they're delineating in, in new resources added at a, a brownfield level was actually occurring faster than the copper they're producing. And that's for some of the kind of world-class copper fields globally. So I think we need to do better with mining and expansion and local discovery at a brownfield level. We need to make new greenfield discoveries by knowing, by identifying new mineral deposits and even new areas where we thought formerly were on perspective, but all of a sudden because of new knowledge have become perspective. We need to consider things like waste, tailings, processing waste, whatever it is, a potential resource. And on the latter, I mean, one thing is that, you know, you need to think about what you mean by value creation, because it's not all about the economics. If you've got a, an environmentally problematic site that contains critical metals, one option would be to process it for the critical metals, 
remove the environmental problem but at the same time because some of those might be locked in, say, acid-generating sulfides. And essentially, you're doing not-for-profit mining, but you're creating environmental value, which may actually save costs in terms of remediation and things like that, as well as being a more secure domestic supply of critical metals for whatever country that operation is in. There's lots of challenges associated with critical metals, but every challenge is an opportunity. And I think that we need to think about it in that way and say, well, okay, we know there's critical metals in these areas. How can we actually extract those and you know create value? And we need to maybe rethink the definition of ore. Ore is something that's, you know, metal is economically extractable from. But should we change that to just that we can extract value from rather than that value could be environmental, social, or economic, ideally a combination of all of them. I like that. I like that very much. Sounds like a paper. <laughs> if you want to write something up, then uh, let me know. I'll happily co-author it with you. So before we get to that, actually, to bring it to this point, one of the last questions here is, I would love to learn a little bit more about some of your recent findings or research, kind of where your head's at now in your studies. Because I know you just spoke at the University of Arizona, but what are some of the areas that are lacking right now in the literature and the analysis around critical minerals? You just published a paper recently on barriers to and uncertainties in understanding and quantifying global critical mineral element supply. But what are some of the gaps that are like staring at you at the face right now where we're not really looking where we need to be or the analysis is not very deep right now? It depends on the critical metal or mineral you're talking about, like things like the platinum group elements. We know where they are. The challenge there is actually extracting them and ensuring that if all of a sudden something happens to the bushfall operations in South Africa, that doesn't impact uh, global supply. But for a lot of byproduct critical metals, to put it simply, we don't know how much there is already in known resources. We don't know where they are as a result. And that means that we can't actually enhance production. These byproducts that are produced as smelters may or may not be produced by those smelters. We're not always sure which mineral deposits they're coming from. So how can you actually effectively enhanced extraction of byproduct critical metals that are vital for climate change mitigation if you don't essentially know where they are or don't know what high-priority targets are. So you could try and take a a kind of shotgun-style approach and just spend money everywhere to enhance critical metal supply, or we can understand systems better, processing better, and the potential of individual mineral deposits better, and then use targeted identification of high-priority targets for enhanced critical byproduct metal extraction. And that's something we've been doing on tellurium. I've got a continuing amount of research on global metal resources, both critical and otherwise. So we had a paper this year out on the global nickel resources and reserves, looking at where we're going to get nickel from in the future, the importance of different mineral deposit types and the influence of environmental and social factors on that may hinder the future production of that nickel. And then I've got kind of traditional geological research. I've got students working on the genesis of rare metal pegmatites, potential for magmatic sulfide mineralization in the large igneous province down here in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and then a few other similar projects on things like molybdenum, copper, tungsten scarns in Utah. Just understanding the controls on mineralization and also the economic potential and critical metal potential of those deposits that we're researching. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I find too many things interesting. So that's why I do a variety of different things, which is somewhat atypical for other kind of researchers in the geosciences often here in the US. I think that's the best of the stuff. Really, there's so many interesting things to dig deeper on if we want to have a nice little pun there. But it's just such an interesting place and an interesting study. And it's an intersection of so many different things. And that's why I coined it the mineral security nexus, the nexus between the heavy geoscience and the policies and the social aspects and how they all integrate and sometimes conflict with one another. 
It's just fascinating. So final question that I have for you, I ask this to all my guests. In a few sentences, or someone walked up to you on the side of the street and they didn't really know much about mining and minerals, why do minerals matter? What would you tell them? All they need to do is look around them, look in their pockets, look around at the built environment to realize that essentially minerals are what makes modern life and modern standards of living possible. Without minerals and metals, you don't have your car, you don't have your electricity, you don't have your smartphone, you don't have your laptop, you don't have any of these things that are vital for modern standards of living, but they're often neglected because essentially people don't think about where things come from. I like to compare mining and farming. Both of them are vital to modern life, but everybody knows what happens on a farm or they think they do. They also have very different viewpoints on mining and farming. So mining is terrible. It's bad. It's polluting. We shouldn't do any of it anymore. It's a viewpoint that's fairly widely held. And some people don't even think we mine stuff anymore. Whereas farming, if you say the word farm to somebody, you've got this kind of sunset over a kind of gently swaying field of corn and ignore the environmental and social problems associated with farming, like soil degradation, nitrate runoff, and so on. So I think both mining and farming are just as vital for modern life as each other. We just need to emphasize to people that mining is beneficial for their way of life. Sure, there are problems, but we can overcome those problems and we need to overcome those problems because minerals and mining are going to be the backbone of climate change mitigation and and the modern standards of living that everybody wants. If you want a Tesla, you need to understand that that's why minerals matter because you need that Tesla. That Tesla needs to run off electricity, which is transmitted by copper wiring. That Ideally, that Tesla needs to be run off renewable energy, which needs more infrastructure, which lo and behold, is all down to minerals, metals, and mining. So that's why minerals matter. If you want a modern standard of living, if you want your lights on in your house, if you want a house to begin with, all of that is why minerals matter, because it's crucial to modern life as farming is. In some ways, perhaps more crucial, because farming relies on the minerals industry for phosphate, for fertilizer, and so on. Oh, very well said there. And I always tell people, you couldn't get the scale that you need your farming without machines and transportation where is all from minerals. But there was a huge challenge ahead of us in the perception side of the NIMBY and the domestic side of getting people to think about the material needs of their lifestyles and thinking about that. I always think of it like you can look on a box of cereal and look at all the ingredients and you can think about it. But people do that in today's like healthy living lifestyles, but we don't really look at that as cell phone and think of all the different ingredients and where those things come from. But Simon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and having this exciting conversation about economic geology, some of the challenges facing our society as we set out to acquire some of these new supplies of critical minerals and metals. I would highly recommend everyone check out Simon on LinkedIn and some of his research publications and also thinking about taking a course in economic geology. There's definitely a plug for that in this conversation. So I look forward to maybe having you get on the podcast sometime to talk and keep this conversation going. And until next time, I'm your host, Thomas Hale, and thanks for joining us on another insightful discussion on A Rock and a Hard Place. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website at Mineral Choices for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out to me. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. We'll see you next time.